Um, we're in the book of Revelation today. Um, that's the last book of the Bible. And you know what else is crazy is we're actually in chapter 22 of the book of Revelation, which is the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. Uh, we've probably got about two weeks of the book of Revelation left, and uh, it's kind of kind of crazy. We're on this last page. I, I have a little bit left over for next week here. Um, another two verses on that page, but essentially the last page of the Bible. That's pretty easy to find if you grab your Bibles from at home. We'll also have uh, a lot of uh, verses on the screen today. It's a blessing today to have my son Russell. He's 13 years old and he's running the words today for us. And uh, although he's using my old laptop, which was the reason we were slow today getting started, that thing did not want to boot up. Um, but then you might have also seen Eli here playing drums, 13 years old too. So cool to have the youth um, serving and being part of the ministry of the Lord. Uh, but we are in the book of Revelation. It's an exciting book. We've got it all audio recorded, video recorded. You can get on our YouTube channel. You can scroll down our Facebook page. Just go down to the beginning and find the beginning of the book of Revelation. You can watch the video series. We're talking about the end of the world. We're talking about the beginning of uh, the rest of our lives eternally. It's exciting stuff. It's crazy stuff. It's stuff literally movies have been made about. And... Um, and, uh, and you've come at a really sweet time because today we're going to be talking more about heaven. We're going to be talking about heaven. And who doesn't love talking about heaven? Who doesn't want to talk about heaven? Who doesn't hope in heaven and, and desire to go there? Um, Revelation chapter 22, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5 which uh, I read one place, uh, they had titled this section of scripture, Eden Regained, Eden Regained, and, uh, or maybe Eden Restored. And if you know where Eden was, that was the garden of God in the beginning of the Bible. It was uh, the place where our first mother and father, Adam and Eve, lived, and uh, they lived in the garden of Eden and it was the paradise of God. It was so sweet. And since sin entered the world through those um, representatives of ours, Adam and Eve, uh, there has been a curse ever since. Uh, we've lost that sweetness of the Garden of Eden, um, although it can be approximated through the gospel of Jesus um, it's not until we get to where we're at in Revelation 22 that we see it fully regained again, maybe even in better form than ever, um, because there's a wonderful story of redemption that goes along with it. And so uh, I just want to look at a couple verses before we get into Revelation 22, a couple of verses that maybe cause us to dream big and hope big about heaven. Uh, the first one's in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. Paul the Apostle says, But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And so that's a, it's a sweet scripture because it's talking about, man, you just can't even imagine in your best imagination how amazing heaven is going to be. But one neat thing about being a Christian, being born again, having the Holy Spirit in us, having the Bible given to us, is that we do have a little sampler platter of what it's going to be like. Um, and it says there in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 2, but God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. So your eye hasn't seen what heaven's like. Your ear hasn't heard totally what heaven's like. I mean, we've got a few chapters in the Bible, but those are just little samplers of it. Um, and uh, it hasn't even entered into your heart how incredible the kingdom of God is going to be. But the Lord is revealing these things to us through the Spirit, 
the deep things of God are being uh, shown to us through the word. And, uh, and we're experiencing a little bit of the kingdom even today through forgiveness of sins, through uh, regeneration, being born again, being given a new heart and a new mind. Those of you that are Christians out there, you know you're a new creation in Jesus. And that is something so fantastic. Um, Psalm 1611 says, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So what is the presence of God in all eternity, heaven going to be like? Um, Well, fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul tells a little bit of a story that most many believe is about himself when he was um, stoned and uh, put to death and was actually prayed for and brought back to life in the book of Acts. Um, there's a little debate on if he actually died or whatnot, but um, I think there's, there's good evidence that he did die when he was stoned. I think it was outside of Lystra and Iconium, that area. Um, but in 2 Corinthians 12, it says, it's doubtless not profitable for me to boast I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. So he's defending his apostleship to the Corinthians right now. And he's going to talk about, man, one sign that I'm an apostle are some of the visions that I've seen. And he says he's kind of vague about it and almost talks third person about it. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I don't know, God knows. Maybe he doesn't even know if he died. (laughs) Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Uh, and so that's, that's speaking of the presence of God. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. So uh, he was taken to paradise. He was taken to the, the presence of the Lord. Uh, and just a little while later on today, we're going to see that word paradise used again. But uh, for us in Oregon, um, we've heard it before. We've heard that word paradise. And our hearts and our imaginations have no problem going wild thinking about what paradise uh, would be like. But it says in there, uh, in Paul's account, that when he was in paradise, he heard things. He heard inexpressible words. It, Inexpressible means words that can't even be spoken. Like, I just don't, I don't even have the words to be able to express what I saw in paradise. I just won't even, I can't even go there. And then he goes a little bit further there and he says, these things are not even lawful for a man to utter. Like, I saw things that it's just so incredible, I can't even tell you about it. It wouldn't even be right for me to tell you about it. It kind of gives you a little discernment into some of these Um, stories of people who died and went to heaven and they come back with all of these tales some of them strange tales some stories that I've heard from people from their very lips are go against the Bible and so that's when you let the Bible trump their experience like sorry but the Bible says this Um, and you know they come back and they write books and have movies made about them when Paul says man what I saw in paradise I don't even have the words to talk about and probably isn't even lawful for me to talk about it before the Lord. So all of that to say, we're in like week two of seeing the new heaven, the new earth, uh, rather probably this is week three, uh, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, uh, the paradise of God, incredible. And this is after a thousand years where Jesus has already been reigning on the earth. That time called the millennial reign the thousand-year reign of Jesus was incredible. And, uh, and something that we've seen over the last few weeks is that when we think of heaven in a biblical sense, we need to train our minds to think biblically regarding heaven. Uh, many of us think of heaven as some sort of uh, spiritual realm where um, you know we, we are dressed in robes and we sit on clouds and we've got our harps and and we're just kind of like these lazy beings in this weird, you know, nothing world, never world or whatever. But, but a biblical heaven uh, is actually, in, in I think the, the Bible teaches this, it's, it's earth 
and it's earth restored and it's earth that has um, the still many of the aspects of creation to it. Um, our own bodies aren't just going to be spirits, but we are going to be in our bodies again. They're going to be resurrected just like Jesus was resurrected. Um, we are like a seed that's planted in the ground when we die, but then when we come back to life, um, those bodies are going to be raised up and be what the Bible calls glorified bodies. And so, um, you know, there's a couple thoughts on the, the new heaven and the new earth that that God actually has um, destroyed the whole earth and heaven, like it's like obliterated, and he just starts afresh, totally new planet, heaven. Um, and then there's another camp and another position that believes that God takes this earth and that he doesn't let Satan have the final word on what happened to the earth that God created and saw was very good, but that he actually purges the earth with fire just as a farmer will uh, purge his field with a fire and create a fertile soil and use what was there uh, for another fertile crop. And uh, he'll use this earth and restore it to um, its Eden, Garden of Eden state. And so um, both people, you know, both camps love Jesus. It's not a huge thing to, to fight or divide over. Um, in my understanding of the word and of the gospel, I tend to lean on that it's going to be this earth that God restores and purifies it from sin with that holy fire that Peter talks about and um, and that he brings us to it and we get to live in it in the state that he originally created it in. So it's excited to see Revelation chapter 22, Eden regained or Eden restored. And so let's look at it. First five verses is all we're looking at today. <clears throat> and let's start in verse one. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and from the Lamb. And so in chapter 21, we saw the new heaven. Uh, and, and by the way, that word new, it doesn't necessarily mean like um, brand new. It actually is used in its original language to describe something that is made like its original condition. So <clears throat> something that might help with the understanding. But So we see heaven and we see um, <clears throat> the consequences and effects of sin gone in the heavenly realm. Think of the ozone, you know, that's been eaten away over the last, you know, couple hundred years, whatever. <clears throat> um, and then we see the new earth in chapter 21 and an incredible picture of the new earth. And then we began last week at the end of chapter 21, so we're kind of zooming in. So if you're like thinking Google Earth, you know, we're out in the satellite realm looking at the heavens, and then we zoom in and we see the new earth and all of its beauty and the state of what the earth will be like. Then last week at the end of chapter 21, we zoomed in a little more, went to the new Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of peace. And last week we looked in depth at the New Jerusalem, and now we're going to actually zoom in even more to um, the garden in the New Jerusalem, uh, this almost central park of the city of God in the future, in heaven, okay? <clears throat> and so the image of the New Jerusalem is an image of a garden city, uh, it's the image of a garden, and that is something that actually brackets the entire Bible. When you study the original languages, specifically Hebrew for the Old Testament, you see that the garden of God is a picture that he uses very frequently throughout the scripture to point to his desire for people, his desire for people and his desire to be with them just like he was in the beginning. This is something all throughout the historical books that we see. It's something throughout the prophets that we see. It's something throughout the gospels and Jesus' own lips that we see. We see it in the New, in the New Testament, in the epistles, and we see it in this revelation, uh, this garden idea encompassing and bracketing the Bible. And we're going to see that just a little bit as we move forward. But something that John sees in this garden 
is a pure river of water. And then it adds just another couple words that even make this river so fantastic. It's a pure river of water, which anyone would love, right? A pure river of water you could drink out of without getting giardia, beaver fever, dysentery, you know? We love pure water. Let's give me a pure river of water. But then it also says it's a pure river of water of life. This, this river brings life wherever it goes. It's a clean river of water. And throughout the Old Testament, prophets would use rivers as a picture of a powerful expression of the richness and the provision and the peace of God, the power of God, the life of God. And John just gives us this eternal view of this river of life, of peace, of power, of the kingdom of God. And he says it's clean, it's pure. Um, I have gone on five trekking trips to the Himalaya mountains. And uh, I go with a group that helps study the health and welfare of the Himalayan people. And uh, interesting enough, as you get into the Himalaya mountains, um, a lot of the places where people will dump their refuse and their trash, it's actually in many of the Himalayan creeks and rivers that pour down out of the mountain. And so as you're lower down, you'll be on a trek and you'll come across these beautiful trickling streams and brooks. And then as it gets to the path you're walking on, you see that there's just piles of garbage that have been dumped there. Um, and, and that's, I'm not saying that to the fault of the Himalayan people. Um, really, it's, they, they need a place to put their stuff and, and that kind of ends up being like a trough that collects it, you know. Um, but the higher you go up, you begin to get up into the snow. You begin to get up into the mountains. Uh, you begin to get up where you would think no living thing has been, and surely this is pure snow. It's not yellow snow, if you know what I mean. Uh, it's white snow, and so some of the little creeks and trickles that would come out of this white, pure snow surely would be a good place to fill your water bottle up and take a sip during your hike. But we've been warned by our organization that they've done tests on even the pure-looking Himalayan mountain streams, and that those high, high up, thousands of feet, 15,000 feet high, uh, that those um, streams have high numbers of fecal material, uh, microscopic fecal material that would make you really, really sick. And so uh, even in some of the most pristine, beautiful countries and mountains, uh, don't drink the water and don't eat the snow. It's not pure, it's not clean. But here in the new heaven, in the new earth, in the new Jerusalem, in the garden, there in the midst of the new Jerusalem is a clean, pure river. And it is a river of water of life. It's as clear as crystal. I don't remember the name of the movie off the top of my head, but it's got... Uh, Tom Cruise, you know, and he's an attorney and he's asking a, a Marine general, you know, if, if he did anything wrong in some crime situation. And you might remember the movie that I'm talking about, you know, and he says, you know, is that clear? And the, the line in the return is crystal, crystal clear. I know, uh, I know what you're asking me as a lawyer. And um, I know I butchered that, but you know what I'm talking about. It's a famous line in cinema history, right? Um, that's right after like the, you can't handle the truth. Okay. Anyways. Um, but this river, is it clear? Crystal, right? It's crystal clear, which means in the Greek, it's bright and sparkling water. It's glamorous. It has a connotation of that pure frost and ice to it. Um, when I was in middle school, I think I was maybe eighth grade, our family, we were living in Corvallis, and we took a family trip uh, kind of over the mountain to Clear Lake, uh, right over here on the other side of Sisters. And um, I remember 
going to this lake and hearing that it was called Clear Lake and wondering why they called it that. And, uh, and I remember we camped in our van and by the time the sun rose, we were able to get a boat and we found that this lake indeed is clear. You can see to the bottom of this lake, it's like glass. And my entire life from that point, I've always considered Clear Lake to be kind of the standard of clarity. Super clear, fun to row a boat across. And uh, the river of water of life is probably more clear. Um, It's proceeding and has its start from the throne of God. One reason why it is so pure and so clear is because its source is so pure, so clear. The throne of God and of the Lamb. The Lamb of God, Jesus, is, is combined in this statement to show His deity that Jesus, the Lamb of God, is equal to the Father in value and in worth, although different and distinct in role and function. And we know that through Jesus' victory, His homecoming brought Him to sit at the right hand of the Father and to be worthy of the worship uh, that would come to a hero uh, who saved the whole world. And so the start of this river comes from God's throne. Revelation has been called the throne book. There are many mentions of the throne of God. And uh, and here is uh, one of the final ones in the book. The, The river of water of life proceeds from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Zechariah chapter 14 speaks of this river, says, And in that day it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name is one. Now, The immediate context of that is the millennial reign of Jesus. But I have my suspicions that in the new Jerusalem, uh, while it will be larger and have so much more glory than even the millennial reign, there will be similarities to it. And that some of the similarities will be things like this river of life here, this living waters that would flow out of Jerusalem Psalm 36, verse 5 through 9 is also an incredible psalm concerning these living waters. And it starts out, I wanted to go back to verse 5 because I even felt like maybe someone listening today would would appreciate this as it's a word for you where it says, Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Your righteousness is like a great mountain. Your judgments are a great deep, O Lord. It kind of has the ring to it of the third day song, you know. Your love, O Lord, your mercy, your faithfulness, your righteousness. Um, And then it goes on in verse 7 to say, How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. And so if you're listening today, hear that God is merciful, He is faithful, He is righteous, he is just, he is justice, he is loving and kind, and his loving kindness are precious. And I pray that today you would find that to be precious for you today, and you would receive his loving kindness. It says that those children that know that will put their trust under the shadow of his wings. He's like a mother hen who just, many times in the Bible, God refers to himself as this mother hen that just brings his chicks in under his wings and protects them. It says that those who find shelter under the shadow of his wings are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your pleasures, for with you is the fountain of life. So no doubt in the new heaven and the new earth, from Jesus' throne comes this River of water of life, clear as crystal, pure and clean. 
people that find their shelter in him for eternity and taste of his loving kindness and goodness, uh, they will be able to drink from the fountain of life that is there. They will be able to drink from the river of his pleasures, as that psalm says. And then there's a little verse that it'll, I think we come back to, we reference it later in this study today. It says, in your light, we see light. His light shows us the light. But that's for a little bit later. Psalm 46, 4 speaks of this river. There's a river whose stream shall make glad the city of God. That's the new Jerusalem, the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. This is an incredible river where God is. Uh, Revelation 21.6, this is just uh, from about two weeks ago, um, where Jesus says, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. And we spent time last week meditating on that, that, um, that anyone who is thirsty can drink of Jesus. Uh, there's an old song that I used to sing in high school, and it had a really sweet finger-picking rhythm, A minor, C, you know, just incredible. Uh, and it, it tells the story of a river that never ends. And those that drink of it will never thirst again. It's down the road by the shepherd's gate. Go to the door, knock and wait. There there's a man whose clothes shine like the light. His face is scarred like one who's been in a fight. And he won it. He won it. He'll say, come in and dine with me a while. He's got the warmest touch and a gentle smile. And then the chorus goes in to say, if you drink of Jesus, you will never thirst again. Just open your heart and let him in. He's the way, he's the truth and the life for you and me. He's the door, he's the bread and the river of life. Taste and see, taste and see. So today, if you're listening in, I just plead with you to taste of Jesus, to let him give you a drink of himself. You will never thirst again. You will be changed. And there's a wonderful story from the Gospels in John chapter 4, verses 5 through 15, where Jesus is walking with his disciples through Samaria. Right now we're reading in the Bible Project reading plan as a church about uh, why Samaria is a place that the Jews would end up hating and disdaining. And the reason is because the ten northern tribes of Israel uh, had their capital in the region of Samaria. And because they sinned and they committed idolatry, idol worship, immorality, all kinds of wickedness, God let Assyria come in and lead those ten northern tribes captive away to Assyria. But the way the Assyrians did things is they would leave a remnant of that community in their native land, and then the Assyrians would come in and mix with them and bring in their practices and their idolatry. And so those northern tribes with the capital of Syria, uh, they began to be mixed to worship other gods and to kind of mingle it with the worship of the God of Israel. And so um, the Jews from Judah, although they had their own captivity of Babylon, they were all led away. They were able to keep their worship um, biblical. And then they'd come back uh, years later through, with Nehemiah and rebuild and kind of be more grounded in um, the, the law of Moses. All that being said, Jesus, a Jew, is walking through Samaria and there's a woman at a well. And he tells her, give me a drink of water. And she says, how is it that you, being a Jew, would even talk to me, a Samaritan woman? And uh, Jesus answers and said to her, if you knew, this is in John 4.10, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman says to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then will you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank it from it himself and for his sons and his livestock? Jesus answers and said to her, 
whoever drinks of this well, this water, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him fountains of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. And so today, uh, there's the pleading to you as we look to heaven where the water of life comes from, the throne of God, that even part of this heaven can be a reality for you today tuning in because you can come to the water of life in Jesus by believing in him. You can take a drink of the life that he gives and you'll, you'll find fulfillment and satisfaction. You'll be like a well-watered garden and you'll never thirst again. Your heart will be satisfied as you come to Jesus. And a final reference here, John seven thirty seven. Jesus was at a feast, and on the last day of that feast, Jesus stands up and he cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So it's interesting, out of the throne of Jesus comes a river of living water, but anyone who comes to Jesus and drinks of him will also have out of their life flow rivers of living water. They will bring life to people and and to the world around them. And it says later that Jesus is speaking of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of those believers. A writer named Seiss said, one of the gladdest things on earth is water. There is nothing in all the world so precious to the eye and the imagination of the inhabitants of the dry, burning, and thirsty east as a plentiful supply of bright, pure, and living water. The commentator Poole wrote that this idea of a river was to let us know that in heaven there shall be no want of anything that can make the saints happy. Think about the psalm that almost every one of us has memorized since our youth, the, uh, the shepherd psalm of Psalm 23, and how in the second verse it says, he makes me to lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. What a wonderful image of our eternal waters that we'll be led by, by Jesus himself near the crystal clear river flowing from his throne. In chapter 7 of Revelation, it says that the lamb who's in the midst of the throne of God will shepherd, uh, we know these to be tribulation saints uh, who are martyred during the tribulation, and he will lead them to living fountains of water. Jesus is all about these living waters and all about these fountains of living water. It's a great picture that God repeatedly uses to show us the life that is in Jesus. Now, Jeremiah has two Words of correction that can rob us from this life-giving water. Jeremiah 2.13 says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken or abandoned me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewn for themselves sisters, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You know, that's a picture of the fall. That's a picture of our sinful heart. We are people who do those two things. We abandon God so often. We run away from the source of life, from the living water. And then we go and we hew out different things. We give our heart over to objects that are cracked pots that can't hold this water, that don't um, provide for us the life that the river provides. And maybe even today as you're listening, God would speak into your heart and into your life and he would show you how you've abandoned him. He might, you might even just have a pinpointed time in your life where you turned your back on Jesus and you began to live life your way for yourself. And right now, if he's gracious enough to show you that, confess that to him and ask for forgiveness and he will clean you up. And the second thing that you've done is you've also run after other false and more temporary sources of refreshment. These are hewn out cisterns that that are cracked and broken that can't hold that water. 
And you need to renounce those things. People, places, things, hobbies, careers, lifestyles, um, your identity, all of these different things, these, these habits, um, these substances that you've run to for hope of life, you found them to be wanting. You can, before the Lord, crash those thing, things down before him and say, today I'm here in Jesus that you are the river of life, that out of you comes the fountain, and I want to drink of you today. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13, and I may not have entered these Jeremiah passages in for you today, so just listen from where you're at. It says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they've forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. So even today, God is merciful and loving and kind like we read in the Psalms, and you can come back to him and receive forgiveness for your abandonment of him. Jeremiah also says, come to me and I will heal your backsliding. That's what God does. He is gracious and he brings us up out of the miry pit. He sets our feet upon the rock. And many will see and many will fear because of his good grace towards us. Let's go to verse 2. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. So crazy. We've got this river that comes down from the throne of God. It's pure. It's clear as crystal. Um, it's a river of water of life. Then there's a street that's mentioned here in verse 2. And somehow the street and the river, they're a little bit synonymous. You know, maybe it's a street next to a river like we see in many of our cities. Um, but maybe the river is the street. Um, but in the middle of it and on either side of the river, there's this tree. Okay. Uh, in the Greek, as I was looking at it, it's, it speaks of all the way across this river is a tree. Now, it's definitely referencing a singular tree, the tree of life. Um, but in some of my studying this week, uh, some have thought, well, maybe it's kind of like an aspen tree, that a singular tree has all of these starts that come up from it that appear all around. And so it's just a unique tree that we're reading about here where there's a river, a street, and then in the middle of the river or the street and on both sides of the river come this incredible, um, magnificent tree. And just as the river was called the river of life, now we have the tree of life. So we are seeing life here, okay? That's awesome. God is a God of life. Jesus is life. And he wants us to speak life to one another, and he wants us to hope in eternal life in him, where there are rivers of life and trees of life. And maybe your mind is already going back to the garden again, the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, where it says, The Lord planted a garden eastward of Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree to grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So when you read about the Garden of Eden, you read of paradise, you read of um, a garden, uh, when you read this account, you read of a river that comes out of the Garden of Eden and it branches into four big rivers and goes out and brings life to the earth when you read this Genesis account. But not only is there a river in the Garden of Eden, but there's also many wonderful trees and plants that are pleasant to the sight, good for food. It's a big botanical garden. It's a big fruit garden. And then there's also um, kind of this paramount tree in the midst of all of it, the tree of life. There's also another tree. It's kind of the tale of two trees. There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the story of the Bible begins in a garden where God and humans live together. And the biblical authors in the very poetic language of Hebrew uh, points us to 
see that the garden is a type of temple. It's a place where God and humans interact together. Adam and Eve would walk with God in the cool of the day. His glory was there. And in the Hebrew language, you see like the top of this temple being the most glorious, sacred place, the Holy of Holies, where God's presence is the most intense. And it's there where we find the tree of life. Uh, The tree of life, especially in this very poetic Hebrew language, represents God's life and his creative power uh, that's also made available to others, his creation. In fact, one of the first commandments to the humans is to eat from all the trees, including this one tree of life. And as you do that, you're ingesting God's own life. You're transformed if you eat of this meal, and it leads to eternal life. But in that garden, there's also another tree, and it's kind of the antithesis of the tree of life. It's a false tree of life, and it represents people taking power into their own hands, thinking that they'll know more and better than God, and humans fail the test, and they take from this false tree of life. That leads them to being exiled from the Garden of Eden for good. And so their question has arisen as you read the Genesis account, is that can anyone get back to the garden? Can anyone get back to where the tree of life is? Now, it's interesting as you read the Bible, trees play a huge part. Trees are mentioned so many times in the scripture. And especially as you look at uh, the Hebrew poetic language, trees are much more than passive objects. They're actually very active. They communicate something. They represent something. Uh, And so all throughout the scriptures, trees and anything that is a part of a tree, like a branch or a bow or a stump or a stick, uh, in the Hebrew, they're referenced as just a tree. Anything that's from a tree is still called the tree. And um, it's interesting because when you look at the Garden of Eden, you look at a high place considered a temple in the Garden of Eden, the Tree of Life, these are images of, of life, of worship, of being in the presence of God that are all throughout the Scripture, okay? So uh, let's, let's kind of just follow, follow along with me here. Um, so not only do you have that Garden of Eden account where you've got Uh, man and woman, and they're in uh, this precious paradise, and there's wood there, there's a tree there, and God's presence is there, there's a a worship temple sort of thing taking place, Uh, and then they decide to go and worship uh, at another source of life. They go to the tree of life, okay? Uh, And that sets up humanity to be constantly going to false trees of life, you know, sort of making themselves earthen vessels, going to false trees of life throughout the course of human history. But as you look at some other, even godly examples of sacrifice, uh, you look at Noah, for instance. You got Noah, and then he goes to um, take some wood and to create an altar and to sacrifice on Mount Moriah, which will eventually be the place where Jesus is crucified. And so you've got wood and a sacrifice, a sort of temple on a mountain. Those three combinations, a man, some wood, and sacrifice and a mountain are combined from Genesis through Revelation. So you've got Noah. I think I might have said um, Noah. I meant Abraham for the Mount Moriah account. You've got Noah. He's got an altar, he creates sacrifice, and he's on Mount Ararat. You've got Moses, and he is on the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, and there's a burning bush, okay? You've got the children of Israel, and they will always go to high places and worship like the Canaanites did, and they will worship false gods. So you kind of have this combination all throughout the scripture from Genesis uh, through the through the early fathers, uh, through the days of the kings. We're reading about it now in Second Kings, where there are high places. There's images made out of wood. There's wooden poles, asterisks, all of these false gods made out of wood. 
and they go to the high places. And so this method of worship and wood, it's, you gotta, you gotta help, you know, bear with me here. Um, this is an image that brackets the whole Bible all the way to the new garden where there's this high place, which is where the temple is, where we know from this account that there's no temple anymore because the lamb is the temple and the people of God are the temple. Okay, so we, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but now we're there and we're with Jesus. Okay, so we're at the high place and the wood is there. The wood is this tree of life. Okay, this is a picture that overarches. This is kind of deep, deep stuff here. It overarches Genesis through the prophets, through the historical books, through the gospel even. Um, and, uh, and even Jesus himself is the ultimate picture of that tree of life. In John chapter 15, he says, I'm the vine. Okay? He's saying I'm the tree. And I'm the source of life. And if you want to have life, then you need to abide in me. And the picture is kind of, uh, it comes to a, a pinnacle at the cross of Calvary where he went to that high place of Mount Calvary bearing the wood and through his death on the cross, he brought life to all mankind. And, uh, and we see that that life is fulfilled in the new Jerusalem, in the garden, in Revelation chapter 22. So, We've got this tree of life. I know that that was probably crazy for you to try to follow along with. It was kind of like a summary of how important trees are in the Bible, how important high places are in the temple. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, in the Bible, how important the temple being in these high places would be, like Mount Moriah, and um, and how the source of that or the the finalization of that is Jesus. He's the temple. He's the tree of life. He's the river of life. And, um, and this tree there in the New Jerusalem has these incredible leaves. The leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. And so there's these really special medicinal leaves. I remember when Russell was in uh, a school here, he had a school play where the theme song was... Uh, the jungle is a pharmacy, okay? Uh, it was a really interesting song, you know. Uh, we're sitting there and they're talking about using all the herbs from the jungle and strange things happening. And Lindsay and I kind of looked at each other like, hmm, me thinks there's a hidden agenda much. But anyways, uh, but it is true that there are some leaves that, that bring some wonderful healing qualities even in our day. Uh, you've got the ginkgo Leaf. It's one of the oldest tree species. Ginkgo is one of the oldest homeopathic plants and a key herb in Chinese medicine. The leaves of the ginkgo are used to create capsules, tablets, extracts, and when dried, it can be consumed as a tea. You've got the evening primrose, which has these vibrant yellow colors to it and uh, produces an oil that's thought to alleviate symptoms of uh, eczema and other skin conditions. Tea tree oil, of course, gets rid of head lice, as we've come to know. Um, native to Australia, it's uh, thought to be beneficial for skin conditions and acne and athlete's foot and small wounds. And echinacea maybe is another example of uh, not only a pretty purple uh, flower dotting the gardens, but um, teas, juice, extracts, beneficial for the immune system. And all of those wonderful things are just like a small picture of the great tree of life where its leaves, this massive tree that spans the river of life and the street there, its leaves are for the healing of the nations. Now, as I was reading this, I kind of just wrote down that the leaves of the tree of life perhaps produce a salve that soothe and heal the thousands of years of destruction that all of the nations had brought in some 6,000 years of fallen humanity. And so it'll just kind of be like a forever salve there upon us. But uh, in the ancient Greek language, 
the word healing really speaks of something more proactive in that it is health giving. Walverd says that the word for healing is therapeleon, which is where we get our word therapeutic. It's almost directly translated in the Greek. So rather than necessarily meaning the healing of the nation, it could be understood as health giving toward the nations in this new society, in this new heaven, in this new earth, this new city. And the word in its root meaning speaks of even serving one another and having this idea of serving and ministering. So the leaves will promote service toward one another and ministering toward one another. Uh, You can read on your own time Ezekiel 47 verses 1 through 12 where we read of the uh, millennial rain and how there will be an incredible river. But a very similar tree, clear down in Ezekiel 47, 12, where it says along the banks of a river on this side and that will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. And so I may have skipped over it, but this tree of life not only has leaves that are medicinal and therapeutic and promote service and um, love towards one another, ministering to the Lord even, but uh, read that it produces a different fruit every month. It's kind of like the fruit of the month club, you know, or or the forever fruit. I remember I looked at getting... um, the fruit of the month club for a relative once, and it was a hundred bucks to get the fruit of the month sent to you every day. I was like, man, must be some really good fruit. It's probably what they're going to be serving in the uh, New Jerusalem. So if you got a hundred bucks to spend on a gift, I recommend going for the fruit of the month, or um, or just look forward to this forever fruit from the tree of life in the New Jerusalem. Uh, John Wolverd, who's a really great uh, professor of biblical interpretation, he sees it like this. The visual picture presented is that the river of life flows down through the middle of the city and the tree is large enough to span the river so that the river is in the midst of the street and the tree is on both sides of the river. Okay, so use your imagination for all of this, you know. I kind of picture one of those uh, glass walks that's over a river, you know, kind of a reverse uh, Newport Aquarium, you know, while you're walking under the water, uh, you're walking up on top of it. Charles Spurgeon says, Others see that the word tree, as a collective reference, speaks of rows of trees that stand on either side of the river, the picture presented to the mind's eye would appear to be that of a wide street with a river flowing down the center like some of the broader canals of Holland with trees growing on either side, all of them of the same kind, all called the tree of life. I do not know how we can make the figure out in any other way. That's what Spurgeon says. Preston and Hansen wrote, Seeing the tree of life again points to a restoration of all things. Now at last, almost at the end of the great drama of the Bible, man may return and legitimately enjoy the blessing which he was banished for illegitimate desiring. So when you see the fall in Genesis' uh, Genesis account, We see that we ate of the wrong tree willfully. We ate of the counterfeit tree of life, and it ended up bringing death. And we were protected from then going in a sinful state and eating of the tree of life, where we would remain in that sinful state forever, where God banished Adam and Eve from the garden so that they would not eat of that forever fruit until the the sin issue in their hearts And the effect of it on the world has been dealt with through the hero of the world, Jesus Christ. And now that it's been dealt with, that forever fruit is available for us once again. And we can 
eat of it and enjoy it. Going to verse 3 in our text, there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. So, uh, there shall be no more curse. Many of life's most difficult questions can be summed up with the answer of, well, because of the curse, or well, because of the fall. You know, uh, why uh, is there war? Why is there cancer? Why is there divorce? Why are there broken homes? Uh, you know, why can't I lose weight? You know, why do I look like I've got hail damage on the bottom of my leg? You know, all those kinds of things. Uh, you know, well, because of the fall, ultimately, because of the curse, because we're not living in paradise at the moment. Um, but there will be a day that we can look forward to where there's no more curse. And you can read about the curse in your own time in Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, where both the snake and the woman and the man are all given a curse over their life because of their sin. And the book of Romans says that this curse was brought, uh, yes, to justly punish sin, but to also set forth a plan of redemption that's going to make this whole situation have such a happy ending it will bring god so much glory zechariah 14 11 says that the temple will dwell in this place and no longer shall there be utter destruction but jerusalem will be safely inhabited so again immediate context is millennial reign but then um also has some bleeding into uh the new jerusalem no doubt no longer will there be utter destruction because there's no more curse we also see that the throne of god and the lamb shall be in this garden ezekiel 48 says the name of the city from that day shall be the lord is there that's a good name of a city what's the name of the place you live on well we call it the lord is there jesus is there and we long for that day we long for that day where it says even his servants shall serve him you know there's something so joyful in being a servant joy comes from being a servant in emulating jesus being a servant Uh, when we lay our lives down for one another it shows love when we come together and we even serve at the church there's so much joy and camaraderie and living for a purpose that's greater than ourselves heaven as leon morris says heaven is not a place of indolent, slothful, lazy leisure, but it's a place where service is done centering on God. So if you have in mind that heaven's going to be a place where you just get fat and sassy living for yourself, that's really more of a place like hell Uh, because heaven is a place where we are with Jesus and we know Jesus's character is one of creativity. It's one of service. It's one of prospering and and helping one another out alistair Begg says if you dream of heaven as you chilling on harps with clouds that idea comes more from victorian era mythology than from the bible the exalting jesus in revelation commentary said serving here carries the idea of service through worship or worship through service nothing about heaven will be boring or dull we will honor our god in delightful and joyful service that is our spiritual worship i think it was lazine who wrote sometimes we hear of believers asking the question will heaven be boring my first thought usually is are you kidding me and then my second thought is your view of God is very feeble. It reminds me of a far side cartoon, I've got it to show you today, of a man sitting on a cloud in heaven, looking bored, and then the bubble over his uh, his head reveals his thoughts and says, bummer, I should have brought a magazine. (laughs) And so, you know, many people think of heaven as, being that dull like man i wonder if i can bring my xbox or like something to entertain myself well 
you have a really pitiful view of God and you've got a really feeble view of him and a pitiful view of heaven. There are two popular misconceptions today about eternity. One is that hell is going to be a place where unbelievers are partying with their friends. And the other misconception is that heaven will be a place that is boring. One science fiction writer, Isaac Asimov, was quoted as saying, For whatever the tortures of hell, I think the boredom of heaven will be worse. And actress Kathleen Turner was interviewed on a talk show. She shared the story of how she spray-painted the words, Better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. Well, here we see that we'll serve the Lord in heaven, but it's going to be glorious. That service is something that truly brings a smile. Verse 4 says, the people of this new Jerusalem will see his face. Those that are serving him will see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. In the book of Exodus chapter 33, Moses says, show me your glory. And when God goes to show Moses himself, he has to set up the perfect situation where Moses won't be fried dead on the spot from God's glory. And so he kind of puts Moses in the cleft of a cliff and makes him face the other direction. And he says, okay, when I pass by, I'll say, look, and you'll just be able to glimpse my backside and you won't die, but you just get a split second. Because if you see me, you're dead man. And, uh, and yet here in heaven, we are going to be with the Lord, seeing him forever in his beauty and in his glory. As the high priestly prayer from Numbers chapter 6, verse 25 says, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Since the beginning, Jesus has always wanted to be with us. God has always wanted to be with us. It's the story of the gospel. The good news is that even though we messed it up in the garden where we were dwelling with God, he has pursued us and made a way through the gospel what Jesus has done through his perfect life, death, and resurrection so that anyone who would believe in him would be back in the Garden of Eden again and walk with Jesus in the cool of the day. Vance Havner puts it this way, the New Testament writers did not speak of going to heaven so much as going to be with the Lord. It's not the other shore that charms us so much as it is Jesus on the shore. Did you know that heaven without Jesus is no heaven at all? It's actually hell. It's not the other shore, the other side of the fence, or the grass greener on the other side. It's that Jesus is on, on the other side. That's what charms us. And our final verse of the day, verse 5, There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And so there's such a light in the presence of God's Shekinah glory. Now, we want to be careful in how we're interpreting this. We often will think, oh, so there's no sun or there's no moon. But rather, it's, there's no need for that. It doesn't mean that there's not that. It means there's no need for it. because. And, it, and by the way, the context here is of the new Jerusalem, this city. It's in the city of this earth, of this new Jerusalem, where God's presence brings so much glory that there's no need for the sun or the lamp. And there's no night in this area because of the glory of the Lord. And uh, many passages speaking of this or prophesying of this. And, uh, and it just shows the beauty and the splendor of this new city and its garden. But also notice this nice little final tidbit that the servants who are in the presence of Jesus and see him face to face. I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that says, For now I see as in a mirror dimly but then I shall see him face to face. Uh, we will see him face to face and we will just want to serve him and worship him and worship him through serving him. But also we get to reign with him. What a gracious God that doesn't just put us into servitude of him where we are just slaves and he whips us and lashes us like so many gods of mythology, but he's a God who desires fellowship with us being with us and then even he gets glory and joy 
from sharing his throne and his reign forever and ever. You can read about that in Daniel 7, 18, Daniel 7, 27, Matthew 19, 28, Romans 5, 17, 2 Timothy 2, 12. All of these passages speak of the saints reigning with the Lord because of his righteous grace that's been bestowed upon us. Now, even though this great chapter of the Bible tells us of heaven, we really should think deeply about it and take in now what we can. Charles Spurgeon said, we do not suppose that a man is shooting at a target if he does not look that way, nor can we imagine that a man's ambition is fixed on heaven if he has no heavenward thoughts or aspirations. And so I want to encourage you as we're in Revelation to get heavenly minded. You know, there's an old saying that that guy's so heavenly minded, he's of no earthly good. His head is in the clouds in a sense. You know what? It's not a bad thing to be heavenly minded because I think being biblically heavenly minded will make you earthly good. It will put you on a trajectory where you're serving others, you're evangelizing the lost so they can join you in heaven on that day. And, uh, and so set your eyes toward that target. It will produce in you manner of purity, holy living, discipleship of yourself and others, and evangelization of the world. C.S. Lewis said that joy is the serious business of heaven. The more we think about heaven, the more we ponder God's great preparation for us for that day <clears throat> and his glorious reign there, <clears throat> it will bring about a great joy that will become our business. And finally, missionary martyr Jim Elliott, who was actually from the Portland area, said this, eternity shall be at one and the same time a great eye-opener and a great mouth shutter. And I hope that today your eyes have been opened to the joy of heaven, but also that your mouth would be quiet concerning things of your own self-righteousness, your own foolish ambitions, that you would repent of those things and trust in the righteousness of Jesus.